Welcome to Useless Pain, the officially unofficial podcast for House of Cards on Netflix. I'm Jim. And I'm Aaron. And we're back with Season 1, Chapter 2, for your listening pleasure. So what do you think of this episode? Uh, I thought it was great. Um, actually, I thought it was great, but I do think it has two of the weaker scenes in the entire season in it. Oh, okay. Um, why don't we start with what you didn't like about it then? What are those weak scenes? Uh, I think the weakest scene in the entire season is Zoe's big interview on some kind of cable news. Like, so it's it's her remote. Yeah, her remote, where they just basically say, so, you're a big, up-and-coming, beautiful, young reporter who's broken a lot of stories, and tell us about how awesome you are, and say hi to your mom, and we're going to act like we give a shit about journalists in this country. (laughs) I mean, I've never... I watch watch a lot of political shows, and I've never seen... Uh, a host just in, in just invite a journalist to pleasure themselves on national television. Yeah, if length. anything, they would just state their credentials up front and then ask them about a specific issue. Yeah, that's been talked. I mean, about. I've seen them congratulate someone on breaking a story, but I've uh-huh. never had them like it, it. It's almost as if the entire interview was about Zoe and how awesome she was. Yeah, yeah, and how quickly she's rising through the ranks of the Washington Herald. But. I don't understand what point it is. Is like, was it to make? Was it's like, did they feel like we wouldn't feel that Janine was jealous and resentful of her meteoric rise? Were we not supposed to notice that this is a meteoric rise? I mean, I feel yeah, like I mean, that's certainly the purpose that it served. Maybe it was a little too on the nose and a little artificial. I, I, I'm agreeing with you there for sure. Yeah. But you're right. It was definitely like that was the point of the scene. Yeah, and it bring. I mean, that's the thing. Like it bring. It brought me out of the rest because I I flatter myself in thinking that this is, um, you know, obviously this isn't a hyper real uh, <laughs> depiction of how Washington politics actually happened. But sure. it's it's it doesn't like break my suspension of disbelief. But when I see something like that. You know, where well, I, the, I the trouble is, you know, what happens on news shows and interviews, yes. right? You yes. don't necessarily know what happens behind the scenes in Washington. Yes. So it's very easy for you to say, OK, this might very well be real. Right. Whereas with the interview, yeah, you can tell it's just very. And, and when they do the other talking head segments, it's very much like you see that stuff happening all the time. Yeah. Um, the other weak part is Walden's just self implosion in the media like. um uh, Kern uh, was oh the yeah. Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah, nominee? yeah. Sorry, yeah, okay. Michael Kern. Yeah. His his just setting himself on fire and combination setting himself on fire and shitting the bed. <laughs> um, like I I get it, and even they lampshade a little bit by having Stamper and Frank watching it and just kind of like, wow, we can't even believe this is working as well. We just kind of yeah, it's too easy. We threw a noodle against the wall to see if it would stick. And not only that, it's it's destroying the entire house, uh, like poltergeist style. It's just wadding itself <laughs> up into a point of light. I thought, and you know, because I feel like, again, as I said in the last episode, part of the pleasure of this show is watching a really smart person outwit other people. Mm-hmm. And when we see the Kern character like this implode, it makes him seem stupid. So it almost cheapens the victory. Yeah, you want to see 
equally matched foes that he then does battle with and wins against, right? Yeah, and, and I feel like um, they didn't trust the audience to know how badly this guy is bombing. Uh, like, yeah. even when he just kind of, like, when someone, you know, when his mouth hung open and then his response was laughter, that was bad enough, but then him stammering and... There's another scene, well, I guess we'll get to that later on, um, in another okay. episode where it's like the same thing, only in reverse, where it's like Frank's the victim of it. And they, they, yeah. I feel like they don't sh- do a very good job of showing um, the machinations actually working themselves out in public life. Like public opinion swaying yeah. one way or another. It seems to happen very artificially here. Yeah, or I'm they they here. just don't they didn't trust it to be exciting enough or the the audience would get it that they well, had to make sure that it's like a a WWF wrestling style uh plot resolution. Yeah. yeah. You know, like someone's got to rip their shirt and you know it feels like for those moments we we need some kind of like stand in for public opinion. And and it, it doesn't feel like we have that in this scenario, right? Right. Like, you can't see what the public is thinking about all these different issues. Except you just see for, what's going on in Washington. Except for immediately after, there's a 30-second montage of all these talking heads saying, this guy's an anti-Semite, and he's uh-huh. the second coming of Hitler, and he blah, blah. So it's like we do see the public opinion being shaped. And I felt like the yeah, way they... We, it's from it's from the side of the people who are shaping it, not from the people who are... That's having true, their opinions being shaped by it. Contrast that with the way they handled the confirmation or the selection process, I guess you'd call it, of uh, what was the new Secretary of State? Cat, uh, uh, Durant. I, Kath, Kathy, Kathy Durant. Durant? Yeah, yeah, Catherine Durant. Um, you know, where basically it went from him floating the idea to Zoe to the talking heads, you know, basically saying. Yeah, he planted her name in the media and just let it get out there. And, and, and we saw thing. that. And then we saw that, you know, um, the chief of staff talked with him, and it, that felt a lot more organic than seeing this sure. guy just basically do in vaudeville pratfalls uh, <laughs> on CNN or with George Stephanopoulos, whatever network he's supposed to represent here. Uh, that was actually one of my favorite scenes in this episode is the one where he's talking with Linda uh, about you know Durant being the next nominee and like trying to feel her out as to what she thinks about it while also reinforcing her opinion about Catherine Durant. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this very, very sly way. I mean, he's first he takes the spotlight um, purposefully and points it at himself because she knows that he wanted the job to begin with. Um, so that kind of casts a different light on his testimony when it comes to Catherine Durant. Mm-hmm. Um, he's basically able to say, well, yeah, I, I did want the job, of course, but now I've got this education thing. And if you're going to go with Catherine Durant, like, there, here's the pros, here's the cons. And he's, right. he wisely starts off with the cons. Right. So that she knows, all right, well, I'm not too keen on this person either, even though he's set her up to be the next nominee. Right. But even that scene felt a little like on the knife's edge of being, you know, I, I want to believe that the president's chief of snatch, chief of snatch. <laughs> chief of snatch. Whoa, back up that train. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Her, the chief of staff. Uh, I want to believe that she's an intelligent, calculating woman, and with when Kevin Spacey's doing this mugging routine and kind of like a very tran- – I thought it was a pretty transparent um, attempt to manipulate her. It is, and I feel like some of that is fourth wall stuff, yeah. like where he's – it's like a blend of him convincing her very deftly and also – 
like this breaking the fourth wall, letting us know that yeah. he knows what he's doing and that she doesn't. And it's that that's tough when it comes to this show because he does break the fourth wall often. And yeah. it's hard to know when he's doing it on purpose and when it's just being hinted at. But for some reason, it works better when he's doing like the Donald Blythe, who was the former oh, uh, yeah. sponsor of the education bill and author of the education bill when he's doing that. Uh, you know, I'm going to manipulate this guy and falling on my sword. Yeah. It feels more entertaining because we're not uh, Donald Blythe hasn't he he almost is introduced as a character for Frank to step on and use. So of course, you know, he falls right into it and falls for these obvious manipulations because he's not a major player. I feel like that the show just doesn't quite know how to manage when Frank goes against a major player or when a major player makes a move against Frank. Those are aware that the, it's, yeah, they tough. haven't quite got it figured out yet. And maybe it's just because they didn't know how much they could trust the viewer to get the inside uh, uh, ball of the, yeah. the political machine here. I imagine it also has to be hard. I mean, we talked about wanting to see people who are Frank's equals. Well, that's tough to do if you still want Frank to get one over on him, right? Right. Because those people need to not understand exactly what he's doing. While right. he's doing it, even though they are what we think is just as smart as Frank. That's that's really tough to write, I think. What do you think? So one of the major new characters that was introduced is the character of Remy. Sure. The uh, guy from 4400. Yeah, definitely. It, and he also works for a uh, lobbying firm. Um, and he was Frank's former press secretary. Yeah. Uh, and now he's lobbying for Sandcorp Industries, which is big na- in the natural gas. And, and I think he's giving him a lot of his money for campaigns and projects, right? And I think that's the company, the Sandcorp, was what they were counting on getting the money for uh, Claire's Clear Water Initiative, too. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. So it's like, it's like we've donated a lot of money to your campaign. We've helped out your wife. We want our... Uh, you know, we want our favors in. You were supposed to... We gave you this money thinking you were going to be Secretary of State. What the fuck? Yeah. Um, and I also love the speech that Frank gave about, you know, money versus power. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Because, you know, Rim, you know, Remy went into the lobbying, uh, you know, for the money, and he's getting a lot of it, and Frank is contemptuous of that, because he's like, you know, money is the McMansion in Sarasota, it's going to be run down in 10 years, power is the old stone home that stands for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was just an am- amazing piece of writing right there. Yeah, and I like how Remy is constantly there in the background this episode as uh, this thing that Frank has to contend with. I mean, he didn't deliver on his promise as a Secretary of State, uh, so now he's got it in the works. He's trying to put someone in there who's going to be just as good to Sandcorp as he would have been. Um, but, you know, Remy has to trust that he trusts this other person right? instead of having that direct line into the Secretary of State. Uh, another thing I liked is, you know, we talked, we praised the way they treated texting on this show in the last episode, chapter one. But I thought the new wrinkle that really opens up the possibilities are when they were having Frank delivering dialogue Ugh. while he was texting. God, which is what <laughs> you, you do. do that? And it's so it's such a like dense way to tell the story. Yet it sets up another scene with no dialogue, why he's still finishing up dialogue in this scene, and yet we effortlessly follow it because that's the way we communicate It's today. a very economic way to tell a story. I continue to love the way the show deals with, with texting and, and uh, you know, the new forms of communication like that. Uh, you talked a little bit about Donald Blythe earlier um, mm-hmm. and some of the, the scenes that they had, which 
I just I, I really want to stress how much I liked the way that he played this because not only is he convincing Donald that it's to, to fall on the sword to take the blame for this whole education bill, but while he is convincing him of that, just like the text messages, he already has another piece of that puzzle working in the background right. with the the people who are writing redrafting the bill. Yeah, the six brightest education staffers on the hill. Yeah, and he essentially got this guy to step down out of the way so that he could claim responsibility for this new bill that is even better. Not just step down, take full responsibility of the leak that he engineered. Right, yeah. And in the press back him as the sponsor of the bill, mm-hmm. giving him full credit for what he's about to be able to accomplish. Yeah, it's brilliant. Um, and giving him political cover. It's, uh, again, one of the highlights of the show. Yep. Um, let's talk about Pete for a minute here. Okay. So a couple things uh, uh, moving beyond uh, in his story. Uh, you know, we see his girlfriend still is kind of not trustful of him. Uh, we see that uh, Frank starts calling in his favors through Stamper. And he's putting he, he's put into a very... Walter White's position and his girlfriend is kind of like a little Skylar White where she knows something's not up. Uh, She's obviously a very bright person and he's forced into telling her kind of transparent lies. Yeah. Yeah. To, to initially get out of, you know, the house to go to the meeting. Yeah. So he goes to meet this, like they describe him as a burnt out libertarian hippie. I think it's Roy Kapiniak. Yeah. Roy Kapiniak. Um, and the the reason he went in there is because they're trying to find out this guy is uh, someone that used to serve on the editorial board of this college newspaper with the Walden guy, uh, and they found this uh, anti extreme anti Israeli piece he wrote a long time ago. Number one, I kind of wish that they'd showed a little bit more about how they found this guy, like because sure. it just seems like Stamper was just you know pouring through reams of research and he found this paper. Like, how does that happen? Um, yeah. And secondly, I, this, this drives me crazy about American politics. Don't most people change their mind about things as they grow older? I know I have. Yeah. Like I've, the opinions and things that I believed when I was 22, 23, 24, there's some of them that's still the same, but I've I've changed a lot because I've been exposed to new people, new experiences, that's lived in thing. new places. You, you get new information. Your opinion should change, and if it doesn't, you might think about it a little bit. Like if you have never changed your opinion on something since you were like 18, you're either <laughs> you were either one of the luckiest motherfuckers alive that was born with your parents and teachers and everyone formative in your life giving you the correct opinion from the get go. Or you're some provincial fucking idiot that's mm-hmm. incurious about the world and closed-minded. So, but yet, time and time again, we see in American politics uh, something dredged up from someone's past 20, 30 years ago. It's like, oh, you oh, flip-flopped yeah. on that opinion. Yeah, look at Kerry during his uh, presidential run. Right. That, that was a huge deal. Right. And it's like, okay, a guy can't change his mind over the course of his life. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to play. I mean, I think there's a difference between changing your mind 20 years ago and change your mind four years ago. And you got there's also what about the day you change your mind? Like the, the previous I don't think day, you, you would have given one opinion. I don't think you change your mind. I think you're you're the way human minds <laughs> work right. is we're very hardened and resisting to change sure. in our mind. Absolutely. But one day a little crack will open, and that just gets wider and wider and wider until it cracks open. And you change your mind. Um, and I think there is a real thing about politicians. You know. Uh, not having a lot of convictions themselves and testing the winds and all that. 
Um, but I think that, you know, too often I've seen people confused a flip flop and when really they were just evolving their opinions and I've seen other yeah. people can, um, uh, try to cloak, um, triangulation as a genuine change of heart. Sure. Sure. So I don't know, but that's interesting. Cause I, I feel like that that's a very accurate representation of politics. Either way, he does a terrible job explaining, uh, certainly why he changed his mind or even that he did. Uh, what is in it for these six staffers? Um, oh, I guess they're young. They think they might have a bright political future. Maybe they do. But what, a guy like Stamper, he's never going to be bigger than what he probably is. And this guy's seen consistently working into the wee hours of the night, doing quasi-legal and ethical and moral things on behalf of his boss. What? Um, what is in it for someone to be just a pure operative like that? I, I mean, people uh, like that, exist, on that Maybe he but, likes it. But he doesn't really have power. That maybe that's not what he craves. Certainly it's what Frank craves, but, I mean, he might just like the idea of being this covert operative for a, a government official. And I guess... Maybe he likes that. I guess it is cool if you can, like, flap down $10,000 onto a hooker's table <laughs> to buy her silence and then be like, oh, and this is for me. Yeah. Is it, I mean, so I, I guess he's not... It, the job isn't without its perks, I should say. <laughs> um, All right, why don't we talk about Claire a little bit? Okay. You ready for that? Yeah. Because this episode, she goes ahead with the firings that she talked about last episode. And with the cherry on top, she also fires Evelyn uh, in a fairly heartbreaking scene. Uh, almost as heartbreaking as the moment when she starts feeling guilty about it in the coffee shop. Mm. I mean, there are... It... it calls into question this kind of ice queen persona that she had through episode one and most of episode two with the firings themselves. You know, I mean, we get to see an actual moment of human emotion from her. What did you think about that? It makes me wonder. I I wondered when I watched this episode, was she going, was her plan all along to fire Evelyn or was she going to keep Evelyn along until Evelyn was so stiff necked and, resisting in her change of directions basically saying you know if i want to have an office manager i want someone that's insanely loyal she wants and a is stamper. going to yeah i want a stamper i don't want someone who's going to be giving me guff and make me feel bad about the hard decisions and i also don't want somebody that's going to be in the office um second guessing every because uh, this is going to be a rough transition i don't want somebody you know and, and you could see when Claire addressed the troops that there was some doubt and uncertainty in their mind. You don't want the second command, you know, put putting some poison in the water as well. So I feel like maybe Evelyn did that to herself. Because at first, when I first saw this episode last year, I thought, wow, that was stone cold. Sure. Like, have this person fire 18 people and then you fire them. Yeah. Do your dirty work and then fire them. And, yeah. Rough justice. Yeah. Um but now I think I wonder if she didn't feel like that she had to and that she hmm. truly did regret that she had to use Evelyn in that way. All right. Well, that that makes her seem slightly more sympathetic there because I honestly buy her reasons for firing people. I mean, you at some point, if you're going to evolve your company as much as she is trying to evolve it, I think there have to be casualties, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, especially when she doesn't have the funding to do what she wants to do without – Letting some people go. And you got, I mean, that's a cold, hard fact of business, and I've seen that happen myself. Like, you you can't, you're not running it. I mean, well, she literally <laughs> is running a charity. Yeah. 
but but they're not it's not charity for the employees uh-huh. so sometimes you do have to make tough decisions and um you know sometimes this is a pure tough decision sometimes employees make it easier or harder on you to make those decisions but still it's it's a fact of life that uh you know sometimes you have to part ways with people and it's it's yeah. painful for everybody yeah and i think this episode did go a long way to at least showing that she was not super cold about it and she did care at the very end and also even her, though she had to do it you know this wasn't her plan to get go this was a direct result of the fallout with francis you know, he uh, did oh if, oh because if, he didn't get the secretary of state job and not, he doesn't have the funding now yeah yeah exactly so she was kind of like forced her hand in that i guess you could argue that she could go back and um you just go back doing what she did until Frank got this mess cleaned up. But her position was, you know, I've already pitched this to the board and I'm not going to go back. I'm going to, I'm going to do, I'm going to figure out a way to make this happen with the staff that I've got. Mm -hmm. All right. My final question for you is regarding the rowing machine. Is this Frank's new window cigarette? No, because he doesn't stop smoking. (laughs) How do no. you know that? Oh, that's true. I've you never seen, seen this. You haven't seen the rest um, of the season, you spoiling bastard. Uh, this, to me, so at the very beginning of the episode, they show them both smoking at the window, thinking about what they're doing. Uh, and at the end, it seems like Frank is using the rowing machine as his meditation as opposed to smoking. Plus, I think he's trying to keep up with his wife because his wife is like, you sure. know, a fitness nut and she's... Jog, she's seen jogging like two or three times this episode. And she runs regardless of what she's got going on. She had the early meeting, so she ran at night. Yeah, yeah. So I feel like that that's kind of seeing her. What did you think? What is the purpose of Frank, the 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 crazy homeless person whisperer scene? Oh. Where you uh, know, this guy's got his pants off going, oh, oh. He's kind of just squats down and basically say, you're a little person. You don't matter. No one hears you. Now let these nice men take you home. Well, I, I mean, I really identified with that scene because that's how I get ready for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you just take your pants and off. And that's the and... exact same thing you say to me. Like, yes. none of this is going to matter. No one will hear you. No one will hear you. <laughs> so go home. Yeah. Uh, but I, I podcast anyway. Uh, I, I don't really know. That's why know. I tell you after the podcast to, <laughs> okay. to, leave, my, to leave my home. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what that scene was about, honestly. Um, do, do you have any opinions on it? No, it's just like one of those weird things where... I know it has a meaning. It has to have a meaning. But it's like it seemed odd for him to do outside the Capitol building when presumably there could be reporters there, and it's kind of a well. He looks like a hero there because he's solving the situation nonviolently, right? Mm. And I, so I guess we're supposed to understand that when he's down there and squatting right in the guy's face, no one but him hears that. If someone was taking pictures of it or a reporter saw that, it, it looked like Frank. Uh, you know, trying to connect with this man, and then when he uh-huh. finally stands up and addresses the cops, it's like, "Hey, I calm this guy down now. Get him some fucking blankets because it's cold out, you jackass." Yeah. So, yeah, I looking at that way, I guess I can see where. Um, but what is that supposed to make us think about Frank? Is he? He obviously doesn't care for the guy. He's telling him that nothing he's doing is mattering, and well, I mean, uh, his, he's a useless piece of society. So. Uh, he does. He hates useless pain. He does. This guy's yeah. making his life harder than it needs to be by, you know, resisting arrest and acting like a jackass. So he's like, you know, stop it. He yeah. doesn't understand, and he doesn't. He wants it. He wants it to stop. If the cops weren't there, he might break the guy's neck. I mean, <laughs> Frank is kind of a sociopath. Right. Absolutely. 
Okay, one one more question about the rowing machine. What no, do you think no, Frank is listening to on his earbuds? What uh, kind of music do you think he would, he would go for? Uh, that's a good... Leonard Skinner. <laughs> Leonard Skinner. Okay. I was thinking maybe some... Uh, this plays Freebird Daft on Daft Punk or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, I would think classical music, if anything, but... You know, really? It's a little cliche. It, it doesn't... It, it. I don't know. Maybe he's the guy that kind of listened to gangster rap. He might, yeah. I mean, he's playing Call of Duty. Yeah. Maybe he's just a little more hip than we give him credit for. Mm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. What else you got? Anything? Mm. Or should we call it a cast? I think we can call that a cast. just want to point out that these first two episodes were the only ones, I believe, ri- actually directed by David Fincher. Hmm. Um, and I'm kind of curious uh, to see, moving forward, if uh, I can detect a difference in the way that things are shot. I mean... There's a couple of really nice scenes that I meant to point out and I, I forgot to, but like uh, in the first episode, post inauguration, after inauguration parade, they showed the capital city municipal workers just shoveling all that trash. Yeah. And I felt, you know, that's very symbolic of a new president coming to town, and yet it, he's just, he's got his own garbage hmm. that he's bringing to the city. Uh huh. Like and people that. are trying to clean it up, and it's like, that's very poetic. And I don't know if that was actually in the script or if that's something that. They just decided to get, but, um, I just love, you know, we talked about a lot of things about what we love about the show, but, uh, I am kind of a cinematography whore mm-hmm. and I love the look of the show, the yeah. lighting and how, how dark it is, but yet how, uh, really good looking it is. And they've like, sometimes yeah. they get a little bit too blue filter and green filter, a little matrixy on us, but normally it's like in the, the dawn or dusk hours like right before the sun comes up or right as it's coming up they'll kind of have a blue tint to everything but i feel like that's like michael bay loves the fucking magic hour if okay. he could yeah. he would shoot every goddamn scene oh he could Why for the he? 20 or 30 minutes before the sun goes down and 20 30 minutes as the sun's coming up sure. david fincher's the opposite you think of social media you think of fight club yeah he, yeah. he would love to delight his uh pr- principles with like a laptop monitor uh-huh. that's all he needs yeah the lighting that's... in this show fantastic it's one of my favorite aspects of the production of it but it's very cool not in like a fonzie sense like a temperature sense like uh some of it i feel like when they get into his house at night they will light a lot of stuff with practical lamps and just like little things around the area well, and that has kind of like a golden glow to it, right. which I like. But yeah, you're right. A lot of it, like people are in front of screens and, and like even their and, phones are lighting them. Yeah. Dome uh, domes of and that's uh, all very blue. Yeah, dome lighting of cars. I mean, a lot of stuff is like that. And and I think that's, I, I think he just likes doing that because a lot of the uh, motion pictures I've seen of his are kind of cold like that as well. Hmm. If you've enjoyed our show, please help us get our new House of Cards podcast launched in style by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. You can also support us by using our Amazon affiliate link when you shop online. Just go to amazon.ballmove.com and we'll get a tiny cut of Amazon's profits from whatever you buy on that session. Best of all, they cost you nothing. And be sure to tell your friends, family, and coworkers about Bald Move. Check out our website for all our other great television coverage for Game of Thrones, Mad Men, Walking Dead, Breaking Bad, and Downton Abbey, and all of our great pop culture casts like Personal Arrogance and The Because Show. Keep up with the latest on Twitter at Bald Move and on Facebook.com slash Bald Move. 
And don't forget to join us on Valentine's Day weekend starting Saturday, February 14th for our coverage of Season 2 of House of Cards. See you next time. Thank you.